0: Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. Earlier this year, Tufts hosted its annual celebration honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that included a conversation, inspired by him, on resilience and hope. This year's program welcomed back to Tufts Christina Greer and Zerlina Maxwell, In this wide-ranging conversation, they also share their thoughts on gender, race, and the intersection of the two. Christina Greer is an associate professor of political science and American studies at Fordham University. Greer's research and teaching focuses on racial and ethnic politics, American urban centers, presidential politics, and campaigns and elections. Zerlina Maxwell is director of Progressive Programming for Sirius XM and a political analyst for NBC and MSNBC. She was also director of Progressive Media for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Here, Maxwell and Greer speak with Kendra Field, associate professor of history and Africana studies at Tufts. The first voice you hear is Zerlina Maxwell's, as she makes the case for involvement by young people in political campaigns. After she speaks, you'll hear Christina Greer's advice in response to Kendra Field. Let's listen in.
1: Well, my, my first pitch is really just, if you are interested at all in politics, there are going to be like at least 20 Democratic campaigns that you will be able to get plenty of experience on. And certainly if you're going second tier, third tier down, you're, you'll get even better experience and more hands-on experience because... The top talent is going to go to the first tier pretty quickly. It's already happening, um, so that's my pitch to work on campaigns because I think it's it's invaluable experience. It's, you know, and I'm not just talking door knocking and making phone calls. I'm talking about digital strategy, messaging strategy, communication strategy, and you will be able to, you know, do those things particularly on you know one of these democratic campaigns because what I learned from working on now two presidential campaigns is there comes a point where whatever structure they have laid out, this is like, who does what? And this is the hierarchy. Um, it pretty much gets thrown in the trash at a certain point. Um, and you just fill in the gaps. You see somebody is not talking to that person. Okay, I'm going to take that job. Somebody needs to call um, you know, this progressive media outlet. All right, I got that. That's my job. I know that person. That girl went to high school with me. So I, I have her email. I can communicate with her. So my pitch for campaigns is that, There are a lot of opportunities to fill in the gaps and get experience in things you probably never even thought you would be able to get experience in. Additionally, the networking opportunities are next to none because you're working with the top tech people in America, because that's basically the tech talent is all going to be siphoned and work on these presidential campaigns. So then that can then set you up for, you know, a real job. Right. I mean, I always tell my students two things. One, you should work on a
2: campaign, two, you should get robbed. Not by gunpoint, but like you should like come home and not have your stuff. And so, but working on a campaign of some sort is really yeah. important just because you need to see structures, you need to see how communications work, you need to see your candidate give the same talk to very different communities. And they, and they need stress. young
1: people. Yeah, they do. They need want young to reach people. out to millennials. And there were tons of millennials in the
2: campaign, but there need to be more. <laughs> they need to listen to millennials. Yeah. The next mm-hmm. one. We have to see ourselves um, in whatever occupation we choose. And so here's the thing. Everyone is good for something. And so obviously I'm going to put in a plug for political science and join the political science department, either taking classes domestically or international relations, because it's going to help you make some sort of sense of it. I do joke around that my American political science degree is basically like a computer science degree from the 1950s, because I'm like, what are we doing, right? I mean, our institutions are being stretched to the limit. Our constitution is weeping right now. But I think obviously... We need to maintain our level of curiosity and we have to read. I think that there's this, you know, reactionary sense that we're all in, but there's still something about reading um, that is imperative. And I'm not too sure if I can state that enough. But I would say, you know, even if you're not going to go into politics, it's exhausting. I mean, I can't believe I've decided to dedicate my life to American politics and I I actually have to read the news every single Mm -hmm. day. obviously you see I'm looking at my phone and I'm trying not to touch it just because I'm on a panel. But I do think I always tell people everyone's good for something. Even if you go to J.P. Morgan or, you know, you decide to be an iBanker. It's like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, or a corporate lawyer, right? Someone needs to finance the revolution, right? Someone needs to pay for young candidates who want to run against an incumbent and actually need something. And so, I mean, I would hope that also for those of you who might be a little discouraged by the current political moment, there are a lot of really interesting young people who are running, not just on the presidential level, but down ticket matters. And so I've been thinking about this idea of political tithing. Obviously, when you belong to a faith-based institution, you also tithe to that institution because you want to see it thrive and flourish. That's the same way I feel about my political institutions. So if I see a young person or an interesting person running for um, some sort of elected office, it doesn't matter if it's not in New York City. I support them financially, and I try and get other people to support them financially because that's my way of buying into seeing the, the type of democracy that I want. So I put in a little plug for that as well
1: want to bring us back to King and to modern civil rights movement, to his lifetime and to, you know, five decades ago and then where things stand today. I mean, do you have reflections upon um, how, you know, what the relevance of King might be to our current moment?
2: I prefer to remember King sort of um, less I-have-a-dream speech, more Birmingham, letter from Birmingham jail, sort of Vietnam speech at Riverside Church, the sort of less sanitized king that sort of Republicans like to quote. Um, there's, a, there's a scholar at the University of Colorado, a legal scholar who said that um, right-wing judges cite king 87 times more than left-wing judges before they hand down basically life sentences to black people. And so the way he's been utilized by particular um, institutions rubs me the wrong way. So I prefer to remember the king that actually fought for jobs and freedom, um, that was trying to organize all people, right? And so, I mean, king wasn't assassinated. I mean, everyone keeps saying he died. It's like he didn't die of cancer. He was assassinated, Right. right? And so king's assassinated because he's trying to mobilize poor people across not just the United States but the world right I mean he dies or he dies he's assassinated organizing sanitation workers in Memphis right he's his latter writings talk about poor white people in Appalachia and how they share more in common with the Negro than they'd like to think right going back to what LBJ says if you convince the poorest white man that he's better than the Negro you can rob his pockets all day long we're seeing that now and so I think the king that I like to remember is one that understood this collective identity of injustice and how we can band together to to fight it
1: i've been thinking a lot about um the moment we're in in terms of the normalization of racism in this moment um i remember um on the campaign we It was me and one other person. I think it was the Latino media person. I think it was that—that was who we kind of like made eye contact in meeting. You know, again, very few people of color in these high-level meetings, coming up with messaging, coming up with the words that Hillary Clinton is going to say, and it felt like we needed to have a pull aside. You know, it was one of those kind of cities. I don't know if it was around the hiring of Steve Bannon or when she was going to make a speech about white nationalism and the alt right. But we were like, we need to have like our own meeting, like a meeting. We call it the meeting before the meeting. Um, you sort of have the powwow. Um, the people of color did this a lot on the campaign. So if you're ever in a larger organization, um, or even here at, in a campus setting, if you have like the meeting before the meeting, all right, this is what we're going to do in the meeting. You know, where you sit down and you have sort of two or three people discuss. That can be really powerful um, in trying to communicate what you're trying to get across in the larger. Um, meeting. So that's just a pro tip Um, I've learned in my many years of sort of being in big organizations. But we had a pull aside and essentially what we landed on was Donald Trump is normalizing racism. That was what we came out of our meeting before the meeting. Um, And we, we basically decided that we needed to go into the larger meeting and communicate this to the higher ups in the campaign because we needed to start saying this that he's normalizing racism in a way that is making it socially acceptable again to be overtly racist in public without any consequences. And that was what we he was doing. It wasn't that he was just saying things that were, you know, upsetting or racist. He wasn't just, you know, he didn't just have a few supporters that were saying things that were upsetting and racist. He was actually emboldening a certain portion of the country that you know, is really dangerous to embolden um, given the fact that we had an understanding of American history in a way that I think, you know, some of the people that were higher up weren't thinking in those terms. And so I I say all that to say that, again, we don't want want the sanitized king. Um, But I also don't like the I have a dream, you know, we're not. We're, we're thinking about the content of the character and not the color of the skin as if the color of your skin is irrelevant. The color of your skin doesn't dictate how people treat you from the moment you're born to the moment you pass away. That it doesn't dictate so many things about your existence on this planet. And so I think in this moment, it's a moment where we embrace difference um, and actually talk about it um, and, and instead of trying to assimilate. Like, I hate that word too. So that's... You know, in this moment, I am celebrating difference and embracing it. And, you know, I love to hear about, you know, just exactly where somebody is from and, and what brought them there and how many ethnicities they are, even if it's just one. But I think it's important to highlight and embrace difference. I say all of that to say that I think the radical Dr. King is, is one that I, I feel like I want to embody more. Um, because it's necessary in this moment. It's not sufficient because we, you know, I don't know what would be sufficient to eradicate that, but I think in this moment we all have to sort of be brave in in the way that Dr. King was uh, later um, in terms of, you know, bucking um, the trend and coming out against the war and talking about poverty in, in such explicit terms. So I think it's it's this moment that you can't sit it out. And, and say that we're just going to all sing kumbaya and hold hands because it's not going to work. If you could perhaps speak to, we've talked about race and class, intersection of those, uh, speak to kind of um, intersectional politics in this moment, be it on campus or, or beyond the relationship, I mean, or the experience of the two of you as women in politics today or in academia today. Um, if you could speak about gender, race, and the intersection of the two. Um, I have some things to say about being black and being a woman um <laughs> uh, I think I think that it's it's an interesting thing to to be in a space right now in politics where being black and being a woman is something that people take as something valuable to the insight that you provide so you know going back to my time on the campaign, I would say that at first you're like. Okay, well, I'm not as experienced as these other people who have worked like 10 Senate campaigns. I mean, there are some people that just go from campaign to campaign. i think that's insane, but there there is a type of person that does that. So you're in this room with all these people that you've read about that, you know, that are basically like they're celebrities to you, right? Because you're like, "Hi, John Podesta." You know, like <laughs> that's a that's a celebrity to you if you are interested in politics. And so I would say that being black and being a woman in that particular space allowed me to inf- use my lived experience to inform the people that I was working with, whether it be like flags that they're missing or messaging that they're missing or ways to communicate to the community that I came from or, or even communities I didn't come from and understanding that my lived experience is actually valuable. That that the value that I bring to the table isn't necessarily something that I would have read in a book. So I would say that in this political moment, um, use every tool in your toolbox, and that includes your identity, to educate those around you. And educate may not be the perfect word to use in that, that context, but to illuminate what your lived experience was and what you bring to the table And sort of how that impacts the topic that you're talking about. Because I think that, you know, certainly I understand how important it is for Beyoncé to endorse Hillary Clinton, but maybe John Podesta doesn't, right? I mean, that's just a sort of light example, but understanding what you bring to the table beyond just what's on your resume, what's, uh, you know, what your credentials are, and what you've read in the book. Um, Because your lived experiences and your identity in living those experiences is valuable, especially in this moment when, you know, Fortune 500 companies are trying not to mess up on Twitter. You know, you don't want to have a Twitter moment where, your company is completely humiliated and embarrassed and people have to get fired. Right. So you can bring your lived experiences um, to the table in that context, but also in the political context, because there were plenty of moments during the campaign where I stopped them from tweeting something that would have been a bigger problem. So all of that to say is use every single tool. And that includes what you've experienced growing up and how you've lived in your body Because you're the only one. You're literally the only person that has your lived experiences and your perspective, and that actually matters in this moment because every single experience, especially culturally unique experiences, basically on these campaigns in this political moment, it's very homogeneous. And so if you can add any new flavor, that is going to help because the electorate that you are trying to win looks like this room, right? It doesn't necessarily look like a boardroom or or the senior leadership of a campaign, which can be very homogeneous. So So as a black woman, I mean, I just always
2: remind myself that I'm a global majority. There's so many times where I'm sitting in meetings and everyone's like, you know what, well, as a double minority, Chrissy. I'm like, I'm actually a global majority. I'm a woman, and it's more of us (laughs) in in the world than men. And it's more people of color than white people. So I don't see myself as a minority at all. So it's one, the first thing is about the framing of it. And then secondly, you know, identity politics has gotten such a, a bad rap these days. And everyone's like, oh, I'm so tired of identity politics. We've always had identity politics mm-hmm. in the United States. It's just been the, the politics of white men. And now we're actually opening the conversation to say other people's lived experiences matter. Now it's like, oh, goodness, now we're going to hear about the ladies and, you know, the coloreds, And it's like, no, this is actually, we've only prioritized white male feelings and now we're not. And so we can actually have multiple conversations about identity. We can learn how to chew and walk and chew gum at the same time. And so I think as a professor, recognizing my value in the classroom as someone who, you know, when I inevitably get the question once a semester, like, how did you end up here? And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I got three degrees on top of the one you're trying to get. So that's one. <laughs> uh, two. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here. But recognizing... <laughs> that just because something is new and different doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make it bad. And so I think going exactly to Zerlina's point, I mean, for me, because the news is so negative these days and because it's so easy to just be in a constant state of rage and ire, I'm really trying to practice compassion um, and really remembering that People are all coming from different places and they might not be where I am right now. Um, I read some of the papers that I wrote at Tufts and I was like, did you, I, mean, I reread my senior honors thesis. I was like, did you really say that broken windows was like a pretty good idea? Like, <laughs> maybe you did. And so like recognizing that we all evolve and, you know, we read, we have more experiences. And so being patient, with others, but also being patient with ourselves, but putting ourselves in positions where we are not just in these homogeneous spaces, where we're allowing ourselves to take advantage of being in intellectually diverse spaces as well, um, to just push ourselves. Uh, because to me, none of this makes sense. <laughs> it, all of it makes sense, and none of it makes sense simultaneously. And I'm really grappling with um, being kind to myself as I'm trying to sift through sort of the historical nuances of the present moment that we're in and recognizing that not everyone is going to have my experience as a black woman and sort of meet me where I am when I need them to meet me there. And so I think that's what I'm working on.
1: Thank you both so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Katie mcleod Strollo, Stefan Hacker, Dave Nusher, and Anna Miller. This episode was edited by 5 to 9 Productions and Anna Miller. Web production and editing support provided by Taylor McNeil. Special thanks to Zach Cole and the University Chaplaincy and Somerville Media Center. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music. And my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well.